0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brotmarkel and coming up on the program, the Miami suburb of Coral Gables is an iconic planned community. We'll talk with Arva Moore Parks, author of George Merrick, Son of the South Wind.
1: Well, he was very visual, and he read all the time, and, and he would take the vegetables into city of Miami uh, every day when he was a teenager again, and, and he would read books, and he would go from what is now Coral Gables to downtown Miami, which took four hours. And, uh, and he read both ways, and he loved Washington Irving's Alhambra.
0: We'll
2: discuss historic Sanborn fire insurance maps. The Sanborn and fire insurance maps are really the only collection of maps in the United States that historians, demographers can use to understand the evolution of a single property or a single area
0: and we'll talk about Ernest Hemingway's Cats. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. I have often walked down the street before But the pavement always stayed beneath my feet before All at once am I several stories high
1: Street where you live.
0: The beautifully landscaped streets of Coral Gables are lined with Mediterranean style buildings that have become a preferred form of Florida architecture. The Miami suburb has become an iconic planned community. Coral Gables was the vision of George Merrick, who in the 1920s transformed his family's citrus grove into a community that included middle-class housing, public parks and trolley transportation, and an educational institution that would become the University of Miami. Arva Moore Parks is author of the book George Merrick, Son of the South Wind. The book won a Florida Book Award and the Charlton Tobo Book Award from the Florida Historical Society. Parks studied with the renowned Florida historian Charlton Tobo.
1: Well, that's one of the great fortune, wonderful times in my life Uh, when I was a school teacher and I saw a bulletin on the bulletin board about a free six-hour credit if you applied and worked, and I was accepted, and it was at American Studies, and he was one of the leaders of it. And uh, I did a big major paper, and he said it was the best one he'd ever read, which I was a history teacher, you know, that's just, no one had ever said that to me before, and I said, do you think I should go to graduate school? And he said, yes, and I'll get you a scholarship and an assistantship, and he did. And the rest is history, so to speak, because he was getting ready to retire, and he was looking for someone else who would be interested in writing local history. And and so uh, he's the one that encouraged me to do Coconut Grove. And I was the first Miamian Uh, to do really primary research on Miami history. No one had done it previously. They were using secondary sources you know, and things like that. So he taught me, A, how to do that, and B, then uh, I, I went all over and did it.
0: Arva Moore Parks worked to preserve Harry S. Truman's Little White House in Key West and the Biltmore Hotel in Miami. She runs the Coral Gables Museum and served as president of History Miami. Her interest in the history of Coral Gables partially comes from the fact that she is a longtime resident of the community.
1: Well, I um, moved into Coral Gables in 1970 and bought an old beat-up house, and everybody thought I was crazy. Uh, and but Don LeBrun, who was special projects person at the time, I had met him at History Miami through Dr. Thibault, and he recruited me to head the first preservation board in South Florida. And as I've joked and said, nobody knew what we were doing, but we began to really look around. So that's when I started learning about Coral Gables big time. And uh, when we worked to save the Merrick house, I got to know Richard Merrick, who was George Merrick's youngest brother. And his wife, Mildred, uh, was a librarian at UM who I'd known for a long time. And uh, about 10 years ago, she said, I have some material no one's ever seen, and uh, that is what prompted the writing of the book because there were personal letters, notes, note cards, and particularly a group of his short stories. And I recognized immediately that they were eyewitness accounts because he was 13 when he came here.
0: While writing the book, George Merrick, Son of the South Wind, Arva Moore Parks had access to Merrick's personal papers and documents, as well as people who knew him.
1: Well, I did have Richard share stories with me. One of the things I think I learned from Richard is what George was really like as a human being. Uh, and, and everybody also told me that of all the Merrick children, he and Richard were the most alike. Uh, there was this intellectual streak, an artistic streak. And uh, so I was able to, well, I do feel like I know George Merrick from all the research that I'm particularly reading uh, so much of what he wrote.
0: In 1899, George Merrick's family moved from Doxbury, Massachusetts to Miami, Florida to participate in the citrus industry. The pioneering spirit of his family helped to inspire the 13-year-old George Merrick.
1: I think the fact that when he got here, everybody had to learn. Uh, His father and mother were both college graduates, and they moved into the back country, into an old homestead, because his father wanted to leave the ministry and raise grapefruit. And George was only 13. And so he did not go back to school, but he worked in the fields to help his father. And he worked with a bunch of the young, teenage Black Bahamians from Coconut Grove who became his very dear friends, his only friends. So uh, they became pioneers, but they had a very different background. They were intellectual college graduates in an era when there weren't a lot of those around.
0: As a young man, George Merrick dreamed of transforming his family's land into a beautiful, planned community. He was not a typical developer of Florida land. As Parks explains, he wanted to create an affordable place to live with public infrastructure to benefit residents.
1: Well, he was very visual, and he read all the time, and, and he would take the vegetables into the city of Miami uh, every day when he was a teenager again, and, and he would read books, and he would go from what is now Coral Gables to downtown Miami, which took four hours. And, uh, and he read both ways. And he loved Washington Irving's Alhambra. That's where he got a lot of ideas. And he would look and see the Pineland. And uh, then when he went to New York, uh, his father wanted him to go to law school. He lived with his uncle, Denman Fink, who was his mother's brother, who was an illustrator and artist. So you're getting all this visual. And they began to talk about making a planned community with architectural controls. That's what's really unique about Coral Gables, even to this day. So he went around and looked at other planned communities in the north. And then he and Denman Fink, really, and a landscape architect that he met by accident, named Frank Button, who came down to work for the Deerings, And his first cousin, George Fink, they did the original plan for Coral Gables.
0: George Merrick worked with a team of architects, city planners, and landscapers to make his dream of Coral Gables a reality. Arvamore Parks describes what makes the look of the community unique.
1: Well, I think there are two things. First of all, they have an architectural board, uh, and I'm a little unhappy with them as we speak. They're letting a lot of white boxes in, which bother me, but they've always had that. So you can't build anything in Coral Gables unless you go to the architectural board. And when George proposed that originally, people said nobody will buy, but of course they did. Then the other thing that really makes Coral Gables unique is the landscaping. George planted 30,000 trees. When they started building the glass boxes, we got the Mediterranean ordinance passed in Coral Gables. And what it allows you, if you build with a Mediterranean-style new building, Uh, you get to go a little taller. So we're getting towers back, and he loved his towers, you know, the Biltmore. And also, if you save a historic building, you can transfer your development rights to get a little taller on what you're building new. So I think in the, that's in the 80s and 90s, I think it was about to go away with the glass boxes, and that got stopped too. So it's, it's been very successful, the values have gone up, and I think people realize that it is the architectural controls probably more than anything else that have kept the feeling in Coral Gables today.
0: The Florida land boom of the 1920s was followed by a bust and then the Great Depression. George Merrick lost his fortune.
1: He was literally thrown out in 1928 because uh, they had created a city, he was uh, on the commission, uh, but he was having some health problems, and they threw him off the commission because he missed too many meetings. And he tried to start George American Incorporated, but uh, the depression had hit then, and uh, he didn't have any money really to invest anymore. And he was losing, you know, property; things were being foreclosed. So he uh, he never got bitter, and I could never figure out why. So it's the ma- it's the man. The man is a man of great character. And he ended up in 1940 taking the exam for postmaster, and he had the highest score, and he actually became postmaster of Miami. And, uh, and they loved him. The postman loved him because he treated them as equal. The first thing he did was give equal pay to women who were working in the post office department. I mean, he did things that really brief time. Uh, and then the big mural that's in the central courtroom, which it was also the federal courthouse at the time, uh, was done by Dim and Fink. And if you can look at it carefully, you'll see a lot of the Coral Gables history painted into the wall.
0: Merrick never recovered financially. At his death, his estate was valued at less than $400. Arvamore Parks says that despite his losses, Merrick never was bitter.
1: He uh, talked about how proud he was. He did live long enough to have some things start to come back, and people were starting to say good things about him again. He was almost forgotten there for a few years in the 30s. He also. A lot of people don't realize how important the environment was to him. And he uh, worked really hard for the environment. Uh, he actually was one of the founders of Fairchild Tropical Garden, spoke at the opening, and that made him very happy. So he never stopped pushing both trees in the environment and keeping, he spoke up to keep coral gables, keep the ideal, he called it, keep the ideal alive. And that's really probably why we still have coral gables.
0: Coral Gables has had ups and downs over the past century, but overall, Merrick's dream of a landscaped, planned community has been well-preserved.
1: As I've said, I worry a little bit about letting to intrusiveness of some modern architecture. Um, I don't think the architectural board, as we speak, is as strong as it's been in the past. They are appointed by the commission. Uh, the commission, I think, is doing better on under- starting to understand this better. Uh, we just can't lose it. We've made it this long Uh, They've done good at taking care of the entrances and plazas and Venetian pool. In other words, they could stamp it. They're doing really good at restoring that. We have a wonderful preservation department in Coral Gables. We have districts now. We have a Coral Rock thematic district, which is wonderful. So we don't want to lose that overall feeling. And that's what I, at least in my opinion, some of these boxy white things are doing.
0: As passionate as George Merrick was about creating Coral Gables, his first love was writing. It was always his intention to pursue a writing career after his community was established. Arvamore Parks is working to make Merrick's dream to become a published writer
1: a reality. Yes, I hope that I think the University Press of Florida is interested to will publish his short stories uh, because I realized, first of all, they're good short stories. But secondly, I I realized they were eyewitness accounts that this little boy, this teenage boy and young man had witnessed and written stories about and fictionalized them. And sometimes he changed the names, but not even enough I could recognize who he was talking about. And that, I hope, will be my next major project is to do that for George. It's for George.
0: Arva Moore Parks is author of the award-winning book George Merrick, Son of the South Wind, visionary creator of Coral Gables. People stop and stare They don't bother me For there's nowhere else on earth That I would rather be
1: Let the time go by
0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brotmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to subscribe to our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly, watch archived episodes of our television series, Florida Frontiers, find great books on Florida history and culture, and much more. You can also visit MyFloridaHistory.org to make a reservation for the Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium to be held aboard the Carnival Sensation May 18 22nd, 2017. The ship leaves from Miami, spending a full day in Key West, visiting historic sites such as the Harry S. Truman Little White House and the Ernest Hemingway House. From there, we'll go to Cozumel to visit the spectacular ancient Mayan city of Tulum. The theme for this conference cruise is Islands in the Stream, exploring history and archaeology in Key West and Cozumel. In addition to the exciting excursions, the event features paper presentations and roundtable discussions on board ship. One of the featured speakers will be Robert Kirstein, award-winning author of the book Key West on the Edge, Inventing the Conch Republic. Also featured will be Sandra Starr, senior researcher emerita from the Smithsonian Institution, presenting the paper, Maya Mariners, the Yucatan and Florida, a researcher's tale of seduction into the cross-gulf travel theory. You don't want to miss this exciting Florida Historical Society annual meeting and symposium aboard the Carnival Sensation. Cabins are going quickly. Visit myfloridahistory.org for more information. This is Florida Frontiers. Historians glean information from many types of documents. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History
2: in Cocoa. Ben, today we're looking at Sanborn fire insurance maps. Yeah, that's right. And the uh, Sanborn maps, as they're commonly referred to, were produced from the mid-19th century all the way up through the late 20th century by the Sanborn Fire Insurance Map Company. Uh, And the company was created in 1867 by Daniel Alfred Sanborn, who was originally from Massachusetts. He was a young civil surveyor who was contracted by an insurance firm to create a map for a particular area in Massachusetts. Well, Mr. Sanborn realized the potential for uh, potential to make quite a bit of money in creating a Uh, a standardized map system for large cities uh, originally throughout the northeastern part of the United States, uh, but that expanded throughout the entire country. In fact, by the early 20th century, the Sanborn Fire Insurance Map Company had created uh, detailed surveying maps of over 12,000 cities and towns throughout the United States, including quite a few uh, right here in Florida. Uh, what's interesting about these maps is, um, as the uh, title indicates, they were created for insurance companies uh, and their underwriters, and they are uh, very detailed surveying maps that, uh, as I s- mentioned before, are highly standardized. So every single map for every single city that the Sanborn Map Company created um, all use, used utilized rather the same uh, color coordination system, uh, indicated where uh, physical structures were uh, throughout uh, every single building in an entire town. So if you look at one of these maps today, you get a very accurate uh, idea of what a town looked like, say, in the 1870s. Uh, you can then compare that to what it looked like, say, in the 1950s. Um, so they're, they're uh, again, very uh, uh, detailed maps, but they're also uh, aesthetically pleasing as well, again, because of that uniformity. Uh, so there's a, a certain amount of, of artfulness that really went into these uh, these surveying uh, maps. Now, uh, Sanborn, like I said, was uh, started the company in the 1860s and uh, through the late 19th and early 20th century with the enormous growth in, in the urban population of, of most U.S. cities and towns, um, the demand for these fire insurance maps uh, really increased into the 20th century. Uh, and at the height of the company's history, they employed hundreds of, of private surveyors who traveled throughout the country and created these maps, uh, but also hundreds of lithographers cartographers, printers, uh, salesmen, uh, who were all involved in uh, creating and then marketing these maps for uh, insurance companies.
0: And you have here some Sanborn Fire insurance maps from St. Augustine.
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh, what we're looking at today is a large bound volume uh, dated April 1930 for the city of St. Augustine. And this is uh, one of the only original standborn maps that we have in the collection. Uh, and if we open this up, you'll see that uh, each page uh, uh, measures uh, almost two feet by two feet. I mean, they're enormous. But uh, because of the size, it enables the surveyors to include a lot of uh, uh, really interesting details about every single structure. And what probably first uh, strikes, you know, most people when they see these maps is the coloration. We see these really bright hand-colored pinks and blues and yellows, and that was all indicative of the type of structure uh, that we're looking at. Uh, and each Sandborn map, at least each bound volume, came with a key. So if we look at uh, the the key for uh, St. Augustine, we'll notice that the uh, blue maps Um, or the blue structures, rather, indicate that a building is made out of some kind of stone. In fact, if it's blue with a small CBR dot, that means that it's concrete with some brick structure. Now, this is important, again, for insurance companies because they want to properly understand and accurately understand um, how to assess the liability when insuring certain structures and certain properties. And they want to know exactly what these buildings are made out of. Uh, We notice the uh, yellow buildings would be a frame building or wood frame building. Um, We also see uh, uh, small indications for windows. Uh, we know where all of the doors are. But if we look down the streets, we're actually looking at the intersection of uh, King Street and Cordova, there is a fire hydrant. And that's uh, marked here as, as an FR showing uh, exactly where, where fire extinguishers were. And again, that would affect the uh, the, the liability standards that the insurance company would uh, assess on a certain property. Um, and again, they, they're looking at them today, uh, they're aesthetically very pleasing because they were done uh, in a very standardized way. In fact, in 1905, the Sanborn Company created a manual for all of their surveyors to ensure that every single map uh, would be exactly the, the same or up to at least the same standards uh, for every town throughout, uh, throughout the United States.
0: And these maps we're looking at are from from 1930, and as you mentioned, there are maps
2: from many other years, so it sounds like these could be uh, very valuable tools for researchers today. Absolutely. In fact, uh, the Sanborn and Fire Insurance maps are really the uh, only collection of of maps in the United States that uh, historians, demographers can use. Um, to understand the evolution of a single property or a single area. So, for instance, we can look at a map from, say, 1885 of the city of Jacksonville and compare that uh, to a map from 1955 of that same, uh, the same area within the city of Jacksonville. Uh, and if you look at every volume, and it depended on the size of the city uh, as to when a new volume would be published— uh, but for a larger city like Jacksonville, that was more frequent than, say, St. Augustine. But we can look at every volume, you know, in a ten-year segment and literally see the evolution of an urban area and that's vitally important to uh, uh, our understanding of how uh, the growth of, of cities within the United States occurred in the late 19th and early 20th centuries uh, and it's uh, vitally important for, for historians for genealogists as well uh, for folks who are uh, even historic uh, preservationists and, and those involved with uh, restoration of historic buildings you know a lot of these buildings still exist so how do we know uh, you know which uh, where windows were placed and what or not there was a garage attached to a structure, things like that. All of that can be found on these Sanborn uh, fire insurance maps. Now, uh, the Library of Congress probably has the largest single collection of these maps, but there are a few other firms throughout the, uh, throughout the United States that have digitized uh, these maps and actually allow users to uh, layer uh, uh, y- different years you know, on top of each other so you can, again, visually see how uh, a structure has, uh, has evolved and, and changed over time. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben Biassi
0: is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Many visitors to Key West make a point of stopping at the Ernest Hemingway House and Museum to see the descendants of the famous writers Cats. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this report.
3: He was just known by his family and friends and neighbors for his love of animals, cats and dogs, especially cats.
4: That was Carlene Brennan, a writer who has spent over 30 years researching the life and work of Ernest Hemingway. Cats have become so associated with Hemingway and his life in Key West that they have become synonymous with he and his legacy in the city. Miss Brennan spoke with us about how Hemingway's early life helped to foster a lifelong love for cats.
3: As a child, he had grown up with cats, and when he was sick, the cats were always on the bed with him and, and giving him unconditional love. They would comfort him and, and help him in his healing of whatever his childhood illnesses were. And also when he wrote, the cats would be on his desk on the windowsill by his feet. They were around him constantly, so he never felt alone when he was working. He always had the company of his cats. He was content. He had their friendship. He had this wonderful attitude atmosphere of the pets. And and so I think his well-being and his work as a writer were affected by his love of these animals and the companionship that he received from these animals.
4: Miss Brennan paints a picture of Hemingway's life surrounded by his cats. Here she describes some of his daily routine.
3: He lived in Key West for nine years, and during that time period, he had adopted uh, many cats, Primarily stray cats in the neighborhoods, abandoned cats, uh, even the neighborhood cats would climb his fence to visit. And during this time period, he was known for his love of cats, and he would sit in his on his veranda, according to a man that worked for him for nine years, and he would read to his cat, and the cats would be sitting around him close to his feet and he would keep a diary of the cats' birth and death and illnesses and so
4: forth. Hemingway lived all around the world, yet it is only his time in Key West and the Hemingway Home and Museum in Key West that is so closely associated with cats. Miss Brennan explains to us why that is.
3: People focus primarily on the Key West cats. And they were very fascinated by them because they had polydectal cats with these extra toes. And the fact that these cats are descendants of Hemingway's original cats and and the caretakers of the Hemingway House do such a marvelous job taking care of the cats that it's just become a a lovely sanctuary. Cat lovers from, you know, all, all over the world come here to visit the cats as well as to visit the Hemingway House.
4: Miss Brennan tells us that being one of Hemingway's favorite cats entitled you to not only special privileges and affections from a doting owner but also immortality in the pages of American literature.
3: He had one cat, boys. He was his best cat friend. He had a 14 years he called him Brother. The cat followed him everywhere. The cat slept on his chest every night and he was there when Hemingway wrote. He had a special place at the dining table and his own wine glass to drink water out of. He would go for long walks with Hemingway. And Boyd died of a heart attack in in 1956, and Hemingway was absolutely devastated. He immortalized him in his book, Islands in the Stream, that was published after his death, and he just poured out his heart and his feelings about Boyd in in this book.
4: That was Carlene Brennan, and I'm Robert Castanello with Florida Frontiers.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.